blessed Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning that we can come together in this place and we can sing praise to your name. We thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for all that he has done for us. We thank you that he left heaven's glory, came to earth, became a man, dwelt among us and died upon the cross of Calvary, was buried and rose again the third day that we might have salvation. We pray today that as we contemplate your word that you would guide our time. Father, we desire to hear from you today. So, Father, I pray that you give me wisdom from on high, that I might speak only that which you'd have me to speak. Lord God, I'd speak it with clarity. Speak it, Father God, with uh, the assurance of your truth. Father, we might leave this place this day knowing we've been in your presence. And sing praise to your holy name. Bless our time together now around your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Since the, the Garden of Eden, man has tried in every way that he can to fix his own problems in his own strength. But the truth is that he can't. It's impossible. You and I don't have the capacity to fix our problems, particularly the problem of sin. That's why God sent for you and I a Redeemer, a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we approach Christmas, over the next four messages that I have to preach uh, on Sundays, I want us to take time to explore Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, four messages from this passage of Scripture. And uh, my desire is that we might seek to reveal Christ to us, the Redeemer, that God planned from eternity would come and die on the cross of Calvary for us, to have a look in this passage at Christ, our Redeemer to have a look at the characteristics of Christ our Redeemer as revealed to us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 25. And I, I don't think I've ever done this before in all the years I've been here uh, at Clarence Lodge Church over Christmas to look at just these verses over four different separate uh, times. And uh, I'm trusting that by doing this, we'll get a better understanding of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 25. Of course, the classic is Luke chapter 2. And uh, Pastor Kennel may get on that when he's preaching on the Christmas story, but we're going to look in this passage, which is the uh, not-so-classic passage uh, with regard to the Christmas story, in an endeavor to reveal the characteristics of Christ, our Redeemer. And the first characteristic we want to look at today is that he is our pure Redeemer. He is our pure Redeemer, as revealed for us in verse 18 and 19, where we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. I want to make two vital truths, if you would, this morning about our pure Redeemer, as revealed here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. First of all, we want to see that he is eternal. We want to look at the eternality of our Savior. Nestled in verse 18, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ this was, was this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Before they came together. Now that's an important statement in the whole context of Christ being our Redeemer. 
because the virgin birth is a vital doctrine of the word of God and the virgin birth would be very suspect if Jesus was born after they came together. It's vital that they had not come together, that Joseph and Mary had not uh, come together physically before Mary was found with child. Otherwise, you and I would question the virgin birth. And so timing is important. The timing of this event is vital. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. When the time was right, when the time was perfect, when it was God's perfect timing, God sent forth his son to earth to be our Redeemer. I say all that to say this, that when you and I consider this fact, that before they came together, she was found with child, and that God said that he would send his son in the fullness of time, the implication of all that is this, that there was a moment in time when God the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world, Jesus Christ broke through in the human history, and that is vital for us to understand because there has never been a time when Christ did not exist. Since vitally you and I understand that Christ has existed for eternity, that the event in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 and Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, the event revealed to us with regard to Jesus Christ's birth is not the beginning of it all. It's the beginning of his earthly existence, but it's not the beginning of Christ. Christ pre-existed his incarnation. Christ is eternal. There has never been a time when Christ did not exist. Jesus existed before his birth in Bethlehem. Go with me to John chapter 1. Because while Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually centered on the birth, John takes a different tack to explain to us who this one that was born was or is. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here we find revealed to you and I that Jesus Christ existed before his birth in Bethlehem. He's the Word. He's the exact expression of the very character and personality of God. He was not only present at the time of creation, he was the creator, it says in verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the reason why he was the creator is because he's God, a very God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ was there in the very beginning with God the Father. He is God, a very God. He's the creator of all things, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. He is the eternal God. He was not only present at the time of creation. He was the creator. Jesus was the creator of the world, for he is the eternal son of God. There never was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. And that is vital that we understand. Jesus Christ did not come into existence at his birth in Bethlehem, nor did he come into existence at his conception. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. So when we read 
in chapter 1 and verse 18 of Matthew, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. What is described here is that Jesus' birth was all about his human nature being created, not about Christ coming into existence. What's described here in his birth is the very character, the very human nature of Christ was created, was brought into existence. He received his physical body. Not his divine nature. His divine nature has always existed. He is God. He has been God. Eternally, he is God. Jesus at his birth became the God-man. He was 100% God before the events of Matthew chapter 1. And after the events of Matthew chapter 1, he was 100% man at the same time. 100% God, 100% man. He was the God-man. And that's vital for our salvation. If Jesus Christ is going to be our Redeemer, our pure Redeemer, then he must be the perfect God-man. For only the perfect God-man could die upon the cross of Calvary for our salvation. So when the Holy Ghost caused Mary to become pregnant, he was not recreating Jesus' divine nature, he was creating Jesus' human nature. Matthew in, chapter, Matthew in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 goes to great lengths to make sure that we understand that Mary was not married at this time, that indeed she had not known a man at this time, that she indeed was a virgin at this time. And so in verse 18 he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse of Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child. It tells us that she was espoused in verse 1 when his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph or betrothed to Joseph. They were not yet married. And you and I need to remember that Jesus Christ's conception is unique. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. It's something that only God could do. Jesus' conception was apart from the natural reproductive process. They had not yet come together. This wasn't sure his sinlessness, so he could die for us. You know, Mary had a question about this after the angel told her that she was going to, this was going to happen. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 34, she said that she asked the question of the angel, said, how shall this, this be? seeing I know not a man. Mary knew that humanly speaking, it was not possible that she was pregnant. She knew that what was being told her by the angel, humanly speaking, was beyond the bounds of reasonableness. It was not possible because of who Mary was and who Joseph was. They were pure. This is borne out. In Matthew, where it clearly states that Mary and Joseph had not had a physical relationship. Because if they had, Joseph would not be trying to divorce her in verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away privily. 
If Joseph is the guilty party in this, along with Mary, then Joseph has no right to be putting her away privily. The reason why Joseph is taking the action that he thinks he's about to take is because he is not responsible for the pregnancy. Mary and Joseph have not come together yet. This was not some uh, slip-up on their behalf. And so Matthew makes it abundantly clear that she was espoused to Joseph, that they had not come together. And so Joseph, when he finds that she's pregnant, decides to put her away privily because all these things indicate the fact that this one being born in Bethlehem is none other than the Son of God, that this is a miraculous, unique situation. Since there is no natural explanation, then the only explanation that is possible is a supernatural one is the answer the angel gives to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. After she asked her question, how can these things be? The angel answers, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest will overshadow thee. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 reveals the same truth. She was found of child, with child of the Holy Ghost. The angel reassures Joseph with the same statement, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. There's a lot of detail in these verses. You know, what's going on here is a description of of this event in minute detail that you and I understand that the conception and the ultimate birth of Jesus Christ is unique, that Mary is pure, that Mary is a virgin, that this has got nothing to do with Joseph. This is all of the Holy Ghost, and God assures Mary of that, and he assures Joseph of that, and he assures you and I of that, that we might have an understanding of the eternality of the Son of God, the preexistence of the Son of God. So as a result, the sinless Son of God came to earth in the form of a baby. The eternality of Christ is vital to the virgin birth. For by it, Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man. He's the pre-existent Son of God. And at his birth in Bethlehem, he became the God-man. And if Christ is to be our pure Redeemer, it's vital that you and I understand that the eternal God became a man. And then in so doing, he ensured that as a man, he is sinless. Not only is eternality, not only is he eternal, but secondly this morning, notice for me, he is sinless, his sinlessness. In verse 18, and the birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise, when his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Christ is qualified to become the sacrifice for our sins because he's sinless, he's our pure redeemer. And we know that because he was virgin born. Jesus Christ was not born of Mary and Joseph. He was born of Mary after conceiving by the Holy Ghost. 
And if we deny that Christ was born of a virgin, then the reality is that Christ wouldn't have been sinless. The fact he was born of a virgin testifies to his sinlessness for you and I. Now Matthew here is writing to the Jewish people. His desire is to convince them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The Messiah of the Old Testament is now the Messiah incarnate in Jesus Christ. That what they've read about their Messiah in the Old Testament is now coming to, true, coming to pass and is true in Christ of the New Testament. And Matthew is writing a book about the king to the Jewish people. And he wants them to understand that what was going on here, the person that was born in Bethlehem is none other than their Messiah. And every Jewish person who was reading Matthew's gospel would have known that God's chosen one, the Messiah, was to be born of a virgin. Because in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied this hundreds of years prior to this event. He prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, please. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah, hundreds of years prior to the event of Matthew chapter 1, had prophesied that the one who was to be born, the one who was to be Messiah, would be born of a virgin. So Matthew here, speaking to the Jews, writing to the Jews about their king, is making it abundantly clear that this one who was born in Bethlehem is none other than their Emmanuel, none other than their Messiah. And John, Matthew mentions this prophecy in verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which be interpreted as God with us. Matthew is making it clear. He's, he's spelling out the credentials of the Messiah. And since Jesus was born of a virgin... Matthew was obviously implying that Jesus was the Messiah. The Christ, well, he was born of a virgin. Now, one of the most attacked doctrines of the church is the doctrine of the virgin birth. Because it's hard to understand. Scientifically, it doesn't make sense. Biologically, it seems impossible. But all that aside, folks, the virgin birth is important. It's vital to our salvation. This passage in Matthew chapter 1 is so vital to you and I understanding the nature and the character of the Son of God. For unless we understand that he was virgin born and therefore he was sinless, he could not be our Savior. why the virgin birth is made clear before they came together she was found with a child of the Holy Ghost it's important we understand that you know in today's culture the fact that Mary was pregnant before she and Joseph were married would unfortunately not be such a big deal children are born in Australia each year to unmarried women and nobody seems to bat an eyelid these days about that 
As a result, there is no longer the kind of stigma that was once associated being pregnant outside of marriage, like there once was. But that's not the case in the first century AD, or the last years of BC, which is where we are here. You and I have got to understand the culture back then. When Mary tells Joseph she's pregnant, he faces a dilemma, a very real dilemma. Because notice what it says in verse 18. It says, Mary was espoused to Joseph. In verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make a public example of her, was minor put away publicly, uh, put away privately. He could have had a stone to death. Verse 20, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, Joseph has a very real dilemma. He's espoused to Mary. You don't understand why this creates such a problem with Joseph. We need to understand the espousal. We have a tendency to equate the practice of espousal or betrothal with our practice of engagement. Now, in our culture, when somebody gets engaged, they uh, get given an engagement ring, but it can be broken off easily for a variety of reasons, and in which case the wedding is simply cancelled. We don't even have breach of promise anymore like there used to be back a few hundred years ago. If you broke off your engagement, you then had to pay uh, a fine for that because it was breach of promise. We don't even have that today. But the practice of betrothal or espousal was far greater commitment. Now, espousal was an arrangement between a man and a woman which said the two were committed to be married in the future. And this commitment was such a strong, uh, it was much stronger commitment than an engagement when a man gives a woman a ring. It usually began with the families of the bride and the groom arranging the marriage, often without counseling the prospective couple. When they were little, the dads got together and made an arrangement about the daughter and the son, and that was a fait accompli. They were going to be married. The betrothal contract would have been signed by the fathers, uh, the father of the bride, the father of the groom, and the father of the groom would pay the bride price, known as the muhar, to the bride's family. So not only was there a contract signed, but there was also a giving of the bridal money to the bride's family. The espousal arrangement was made in the presence of at least two witnesses. I mean, this was a big deal. This was a legally binding contract that was being signed between the, the fathers of the bride and the groom. And to show the good faith of the contract, the father of the groom gave the father of the bride the dowry, the maha. This was a, this was, this was a major event. You know, now we make engagements major events. We have a bit of a party for it. This was no party. This was a legally binding arrangement that was made by the parents, the bride and the groom, even without the consent of the bride and the groom. 
Once the betrothal contract was signed, it was considered to be legally binding, even though the marriage ceremony may be up to a year or even longer in the future. Edersheim, a great Jewish historian, writes this. He says, from the moment that Mary was betrothed, the sparrow's wife of Joseph, their relationship was as sacred as if they'd already been wedded. Any breach of it would be treated as adultery. You couldn't get out of these arranged marriages. It was far more serious than the, and binding than the engagement. Now put that in the context of Matthew chapter 1. When Mary becomes pregnant during this time, it is a big cultural no-no that would bring shame on her, on Joseph, on her family, and on the family of Joseph. This was no little problem that Joseph faced, okay? He, he is facing a major dilemma. The girl that he's been promised to, the girl to who his father has paid the dowry, the girl to who his father has signed the contract that they will be married, is found to be with child. That is culturally unacceptable. Now, while we know that Mary's pregnancy was due, not due to violation of her betrothal fidelity, I don't know that you and I can even begin to imagine what was going through Joseph's mind. The one thing he did know for sure was that the baby wasn't his. Since it's not his, what's the first question he would ask? Whose is it? And beyond that, it's not hard to imagine how Joseph struggled with this event. He goes to Mary and says, it's not my child, whose is it? She gives him this fanciful story that it's of the Holy Ghost, that she's still a virgin. Now think about that. Never before has a woman conceived a baby and been a virgin. Doesn't matter how much a man of faith Joseph is at this time, this is something that is causing him a major dilemma. He is struggling with what he's hearing. How would you go, man, if that was the case for you? No matter how much assurance Mary gives him that she's been faithful to him, she just told him he's pregnant. She's pregnant. Put two and two together and you end up with four. She could not have been faithful. Yet she's adamant she is. Because you see, she had indeed conceived of the Holy Ghost. That's what verse 18 says. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. But I'm sure that at first it was hard for Joseph to grasp. That's why in verse 19 we read, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. It's not till verse 20 and 21 that the Lord assures him not to worry. <laughs> but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth the Son, and they shall call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. The Lord assures them that it's all of God. Beloved, you and I need to grasp the truth that the Holy Spirit miraculously created life in Mary apart from the seed of the man. See, this is not just words that fill a page. This is, not, this is not just a story that's been told. These are vital, biblical, doctrinal truths that you and I need to comprehend. Not only did the eternal Son of God become a man that day when he was conceived and born ultimately in Bethlehem of Judea, he, not only that, he was sinless because he was virgin-born, virgin-conceived, virgin-born. Vital to Christ being our Savior, to be our pure Redeemer. For without the virgin, virgin birth, Christ could not be sinless. And unless he's sinless, he cannot be our Redeemer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. He was sinless. He was tempted at all points like we are yet without sin, Hebrews tells us. Now, to understand this, we need to go way back to the beginning in Genesis and see the beginning of sin. The Bible says the sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. In the Garden of Eden, death entered into the picture. Death into the picture because of sin. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two says, "For as as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive." So thanks to Adam, you and I are double sinners. We are sinners by action. Every human being that has ever lived commits sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. There's none that understands. There's none that seeketh after God. We've all gone out of our way. We've all, like sheep, become astray. We're sinners before a holy God. In fact, all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags. We are sinners before a holy God. We're sinners by action, but we're doubly sinners because we're sinners by birth. Our sinful nature has been passed down from generation to generation since Adam. And even if it was possible for you and I to live without committing a single sin, you and I would still be condemned because you and I have inherited the sin nature from Adam. You and I are sinners in Adam, wherefore, wherefore, as one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The nature has been passed down from Adam to you and I is the sin nature, and it's been passed down from father to son, father to son, father to son, since Adam. 
that sin nature was passed all the way through the list of begets in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. That's a bunch of names. What does it matter? Okay? Well, it matters because what God's trying to do is establish two things. Number one, he's establishing the rightfulness of Christ as the heir of the throne of David. He's establishing his credentials to be king of the Jews. But also in Matthew, he's establishing to you and I the fact that Christ is different. This is the lineage of Joseph, okay? Luke is the lineage of Mary, which shows that he has the birthright to the throne. This is the lineage of Joseph, which shows that he has the legal right to the throne. And it's interesting, you read all these begets in, in, in verse 2. Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob, and Jacob beget Judas and his brethren. And you read about all the begets all the way down until you get to verse 16. We read this, And Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Okay? Joseph doesn't beget anybody in this lineage. Jesus is born of Mary, it says in verse 16. Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary is the one who gave birth to Jesus, the one who is called the Christ. Verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon under Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Okay, if we stop at verse 16, we've got ourselves a dilemma here. Everybody's begetting of their father except for Christ who was born of his mother. If we just stop there, you and I wouldn't have a clue what's going on. Verse 18 tells us, now the birth of Jesus Christ was this wise. Here is the story that explains the interruption in the begetting of verse 16. That Jesus Christ was different. Before Mary and Joseph came together, while Mary was exposed to Joseph, she was found of child, and that child was of the Holy Ghost. She was a virgin. So all the way back to the beginning of time, the nature of the man passed from man to man until we get to Joseph the carpenter, and then it stops. It stopped because that's where the male bloodline stopped. The sin nature comes from Adam. From Adam we all die. You and I have our sin nature because of Adam. The sin nature is passed down from father to son, father to son, father to son, father to daughter, father to daughter, and so on. It passed on down from the male generation. Could it be conceivable for Jesus to live a life without committing sin? But there is no way he could have escaped the sin nature if he was born of an earthly father just like you and I. But he wasn't. He was virgin born. And that's the point of these verses, verses 18 and 19, that you and I understand and we get in our heads that the eternal Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son of God, became a man when he was conceived 
and Mary, and that conception was not by Joseph. It was by the Holy Ghost. She was a virgin. He was the eternal Son of God. He now becomes the sinless Savior of men. He is God. He is man. 100% the eternal God. 100% a sinless man. So that he could die for you and I. By being conceived of the Holy Ghost and being born of a virgin, Jesus Christ was guaranteed to be our pure Redeemer. Being born pure, he's able to redeem us. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as an animal die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. He's our pure Redeemer. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin so he could die for our sins. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man through the virgin birth, ensuring that he was sinless in his character. And in becoming a perfect man, he secured redemption by his death upon the cross of Calvary for you and for me. Over this Christmas and indeed each day of the year, Let's give thanks to God for the eternal Son of God who became a man, the perfect God-man who could die to secure our redemption because he is a pure redeemer. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the book of Matthew. Father, it's easy for us to read chapters like Matthew chapter 1, read the genealogies, even read the short few verses of the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1 and miss the important ingredients. The times of the year like this time of the year, we concentrate on the usual passages and we sometimes neglect those ones that aren't so prominent. Lord, over these weeks as we look at Matthew chapter 1, in these verses 18 and 25, maybe you gain an appreciation of the doctrinal truths that are taught in this passage. But Father, this Christmas we might indeed praise you for the wonderful Savior that you sent in the form of your Son who died for us on Calvary. Thank you today for our pure Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We commend your word to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. You know, sing in closing, 103. 103. Okay, 103. One day in heaven will still be his praises. Let's stand to sing after the introduction to the first and the last. <laughs>